Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Peter DaCosta, Associate Professor in the Department of Teacher Education and the Department of Linguistics and Languages at Michigan State University. Dr. DaCosta, welcome to Lost in Citations. Thank you for the invitation. I'm excited to be on this podcast uh, this evening. Well, evening my time. This is uh, so. This is gin and tonic my time, but it's breakfast time for you. It is. Um, I'm in the Midwest right now. Indeed, uh, fourteen hours ahead of you, Jonathan. <laughs> well, thank thank you for coordinating the the time difference. That that's great. I when I when I try to book guests on the show, it always kind of mm-hmm. does my head in to figure out the time difference. But you actually wrote me an email telling me what time it was <laughs> my time which showed sure. me that you're a very generous person. That's the first time that's ever happened. I've always been the one to figure out the time difference. So I, I appreciate that. You're welcome. I mean, coming originally from Singapore, I'm always the negotiating time differences uh, between Asia and, and North America. Mm-hmm. Is, is most of your family and friends still living in Singapore? Uh, yes, yes. I guess we can start there. I mean, we're, we're going to get into your book chapter, Should mm-hmm. I Stay, Should I Stay or Leave?, Mm-hmm. Um, and this is in the emotional roller coaster of language teaching, which is a, a great book chapter. But before we get into the the chapter, I'd like to learn a little bit about your background. So, so first of all, let's talk about Singapore. Mm-hmm. As far as English proficiency mm-hmm. and the the ratings around the world, Singapore is number one in Asia, mm-hmm. if not the entire world. What has transpired? Uh, I'm not going to ask your age. I, I'm assuming you're, you're you're closer to my age. So, at least in the past twenty to twenty five years, what has transpired where Singapore has jumped to the top? And I live in Japan. Japan's actually steadily decreased in English proficiency since 2011. What what's happened in Singapore? What why do you see the the change? Uh, maybe I'd like to start by saying that Singapore is a former British colony. And so there's that colonial legacy of having inherited English as a medium of instruction. And, and so for many Singaporean children, uh, English is probably widely spoken at home. Oh, okay. Uh, and so EMI, or English as a medium of instruction, has been around for a long time, uh, since the colonial era. But uh, since 1987, uh, all schools in Singapore have essentially become uh, EMI schools. I see. Mm-hmm. So is so. Are you saying that Singapore is, has always had this high level of English fluency and literacy, and it was it, it's just been recognized by the international rankings? Um, I, I think, like everything else, um, development is incremental. Um, I also do want to add that uh, Singapore still uh, administers national exams that are designed by Cambridge. So students in Singapore take the O-level and the A-level exams. Um, and, and so I, I do want to add also that unlike many countries, uh, we have a very small population and the education system is regulated by a Ministry of Education. So in other words, there's a lot of streamlining across uh, the education system in that sense. Um, Now, has proficiency increased miraculously overnight? I wouldn't say so. I think that's the result of many things, uh, one of which would be professional development of teachers. 
that continues to be an enduring commitment on the part of the Ministry of Education. And I would also attribute it to demographic trends um, as, as more parents uh, speak English at home with their children. And the third thing I would say also, because Singapore is a, a very small country, it has wide exposure to the rest of the world. So globalization trends, which of course include um, being exposed to, say, um, Anglo culture, uh, would also have played a big part in the uh, development of, of English locally. So growing up in Singapore, was it your goal to to travel abroad for your bachelor's and your master's and PhD? Uh, yes. I mean, because Singapore is about 256 square miles, many <laughs> Singaporeans travel outside. Uh, it takes literally one hour to go from the two furthest ends of the, of the country. Um, and, uh, and I have to say that Singapore is very much, uh, internationally oriented. And, and so we, we try to keep in touch with global developments. Travel has been a bit part of my life. And, uh, so while I did my bachelor's locally at the National University of Singapore, I continued my graduate education in the U.S. And so that seemed like a, uh, a natural extension of my desire to travel and see the rest of the world. <laughs> now, the National University of Singapore, mm -hmm. to, to enter that school, do you need to pass a specific entrance examination or, or is there a nationalized aptitude test like the American SAT system? Um, so uh, as I, I mentioned earlier, we do have uh, the Cambridge exam. So the A-levels in my time when I was uh, a high school student, uh, that really was the gatekeeper in a way. So, and because the A-levels are administered in English uh, and they are seen as an international benchmark, uh, that was, uh, the A-levels were really basically uh, the admissions test that uh, I had to take to I'm actually, qualify. I'm actually not familiar with that test. What, what, what exactly is that test, the A-levels? Uh, so Cambridge University has for a long time uh, designed its own exams. And so think of the IB and the A-levels. Uh, these are international exams that uh, many, in particular, the, the A and O levels, uh, the ordinary and A-level exams are uh, administered in many British Commonwealth countries. And so the exams are designed in the UK in consultation with the Ministry of Education in Singapore. So there's some level of localization, but in that respect, so think about the SATs as being very much a North American product. Right. Uh, the rich O and A levels are in many ways a British product. Is it a, okay. a math and English test like the SATs or is, do they broaden out an, other subjects? It's an entire battery of exams. Oh, Everything wow. that from chemistry to biology to physics and history and literature. So think of it as a major examining or examination board that uh, creates exams uh, for very much an international market. Uh, just like the IB is uh, an international benchmark, right? And so there's some level of uh, streamlining and uniformity across um, uh, different countries that take or offer the O-levels and A-level exams. Um, well, and 
Well, can you talk about your your education growing up, going through elementary, junior, high school? Were you, were you aware of a bilingual education happening? Was this something that you you were made aware of by your parents? Singapore uh, is a national bilingual education policy. So since the 1960s, all students have to take two languages at school. I, I mentioned earlier that English is the medium of instruction in Singapore. From which so there, age? From, from the very beginning, from kindergarten? From the very beginning. Wow. And so uh, the four national uh, official languages of Singapore are English, Mandarin, Chinese, Tamil, Malay, um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, English. So there are four official languages. English is the medium of instruction. The other three languages, Tamil, Mandarin, Chinese, and Malay, are offered as second languages in the schools. So in other words, uh, these languages are learned as subject areas uh, in that respect. And, and every child has to take a second language because it's a mandatory bilingual education policy. So EMI means your content courses are, are taught in English. Everything's taught in English. That's right. So everything in a Singapore school would be in English, all subjects except for the mother tongue or second language. What was that? Uh, we, what was that like? That, that's such a such a different experience for me. Me learning uh, a language later in life, you know, trying mm -hmm. to learn Japanese later. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it 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 feels very frustrating when I'm learning content in Japanese. I'm getting better at it now. Uh, mm -hmm. where I, I have some fundamentals of Japanese and I can read some basic news stories and I can get the gist of it. Mm -hmm. But I'd rather kind of speed ahead and just learn the content in English. I guess mm -hmm. because you're you're doing this from a young age, maybe you're not even aware of it. Is it because, I mean, this this comes up in your your, your chapter um, mm -hmm. with the uh, Nepali uh, teachers and, right. and the struggles that, that they had. But it doesn't sound like you had as many problems as the – as as what you mentioned in in the Nepali education system, yes, and I, I think it's again partly uh, due to the the way the different education systems are designed. Um, so before I, I I go any further, I'd like to say that uh, given the ethnic composition of Singapore, your mother tongue or second language to some to a large extent is determined by your ethnicity. So if I am Chinese by ethnicity, then by default, uh, my mother tongue or second language at school is going to be Chinese. Similarly, if I'm Indian by ethnicity, Tamil is the language that I'm going to study as a second language at school. Similarly, if I'm Malay by ethnicity, uh, then Malay is my second language at school. Uh, Nepal is different because, you know, although Nepali is the is the official language of the country, there are also multiple uh, languages uh, represented in Nepal. Um, so what I do want to say is uh, there are multiple languages competing, uh, many more than in Singapore, uh, in the Nepali uh, educational landscape. And... And, and so each... Uh, and extent of exposure to English uh, does matter in, in that sense. But at the same time, it's a question of the level of training, professional development that teachers would have received that would uh, determine the level of proficiency ultimately attained by students. 
And also, as I mentioned earlier, there are many other societal factors as well. Um, is English a language that's used dominantly in society? I would think English is more dominantly used in Singapore society than it would be in a Nepali society. And so it's a, a, a multiple combination of um, uh, factors that I think would make the experiences uh, different between the two countries. So what was it like when the bell rang and the students are running around in the hallways? Do most mm. people make social groups with the the native tongue, uh, shared native tongue? Or is it one of those situations where you're hearing Mandarin and English and and everything sort of mixed together. What, what's what's that like? It's a combination of both, and and you know, some as with um, many children all around the world, there is sometimes an inclin inclination to uh, gravitate towards individuals who of your of similar ethnicity to you and who speak the same language as you. So that certainly was an occurrence, I have to say. Uh, but then again, um, there there was also a fair lip the level of inter-ethnic uh, interaction among students from different ethnic groups. So I, I cannot say as a hard and fast rule that um, it was strictly divisive along language lines or ethnic lines. Uh, I would say it's a combination of both. It, it depended very much on the individual student. But to answer your question, I heard English uh, spoken in, in the hallways, during recess, on the playgrounds, but I also heard the other uh, official languages, uh, Chinese, Mandarin, and Tamil, so spoken. And when did you start thinking that you wanted to pursue this research career as mm -hmm. a as a, a applied linguist? Mm -hmm. Is this something you were thinking about early on? Was there a specific story that that brought you down the path that you you, you know you ended up today? Uh, that that's a great question, Jonathan. So I started my career uh, as a high school English teacher over 20 years ago. And at, the, at that time, I was also pursuing my master's in applied linguistics uh, at a Singapore university, the Nanyang Technological University, which also happens to house the only uh, teacher education institution in Singapore, the National Institute of Education. So there I was uh, having a full-time day job teaching high school English. But uh, on the side, part-time, I was also pursuing my MA in uh, Applied Linguistics. And uh, then I would say, would, I, I would attribute to having triggered my interest and passion research because uh, I was teaching, but at the same time, I was doing research on myself and my students at the high school. Um, and somewhere along the way, two years after into my MA program that I said I was doing part-time. I, I got a Fulbright, I got a mass uh, uh, scholarship, and uh, I, I, I left for the greater Boston area to do my master's in education in administration, planning, and social policy. Um, I think it was there that I decided that I wanted to uh, pursue a doctorate. And, and so I came back to Singapore, uh, taught two more years because that was part of the Fulbright agreement. And over that time, I completed the MA in Applied Linguistics that I started and started applying for uh, doctoral programs. And, and uh, the, the rest of it, as you know, is history <laughs> in a way. How does, uh, how does the Fulbright work? You, 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 apply, you apply for the Fulbright scholarship and then you need to apply for an acceptance into a particular university or are they connected? Um, 
yes and no, because the Fulbright uh, scholarship was administered uh, by the uh, U.S. Embassy in Singapore uh, through what at that time was an American uh, education center. They, they worked with a partner. And so one has to apply for the Fulbright and, and be shortlisted. And upon being conferred the Fulbright scholarship, uh, the candidate is um, asked to nominate. This is, was a long time ago, but I, I'm only speaking through my experience. Uh, policies might have changed, but in, in my time, I was asked to nominate five universities that I was interested in uh, attending. And so the Fulbright or the Institute of International Education, IIE, which is based in New York, uh, then approached the different universities, um, which, uh, and these universities were free to uh, reject admission, right? But, um, but that's how it worked. I identified five schools. I got into one of the schools that I had selected and, um, and I went there. Why are you why are you skirting around the name of the school? Is it because you're <laughs> humble or <laughs> Well, uh, uh, the, the school is Harvard and then um I I enjoyed my my year away uh, year abroad uh, doing my masters in education at Harvard. Um it opened my mind to a lot of things. Uh, I I I said earlier that I had started on my MA in applied linguistics, which was very language oriented. And remember, I, I, at that time, I was an English high school teacher, and that made natural sense, right? Because given my interest in language and language learning. Mm -hmm. But the master's in education uh, was in um, administration planning and social policy. Uh, and in many ways, it was by no means language focused, it was much broader in orientation. Um, and, and so I, I, when I look back, I consider myself very fortunate to have earned two masters, one in a discipline uh, that is uh, applied linguistics and one in a broader discipline, uh, that of education. And, and so um, I would say the combination of both master's experiences helped me decide to pursue a, a PhD sec in second language studies because it brought two of those interests in education and applied linguistics together. How did you choose the University of Wisconsin for your PhD? Uh, uh, that's a good question. So when asked to identify myself as a researcher, uh, I often describe myself as a critical applied linguist or critical educational linguist. Critical in a sense that I'm interested in issues of power and identity and inequality so I was drawn to the University of Wisconsin because there are many faculty there uh, who worked in this area of uh, criticality. Uh, many of my professors have since retired, but uh, they, were, they, they were and continue to be leading figures in, in the academic world, uh, James G., Michael Apple, James Wengler, uh, and I can name a couple of other people, Gloria Letson-Billings, who, who works in the area of critical race theory, so, so I was very much uh, attracted to their research agenda, and 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 and, and so Wisconsin Madison was the natural choice for me in extension graduate work. Well, that's that actually answers another question of mine because I find most researchers are very specialized. I mean, speaking from experience, I'm really focused right. on anxiety and cognition and performance, 
And I was almost encouraged to be specialized. I mean, that's what I want to do anyway. But I, I find many people are encouraged to be specialists um, for, for, for a variety of reasons. But you're, you're kind of the opposite. I mean, you, you're interested in scalar approaches to language learning, teacher identity, right. study abroad research methodologies, teacher emotions, ethical research. These are, this is a broad range of interests. Is this something that, that, I, I can see how you, you branched off with uh, the two different masters and then you went to the PhD. Is this something that – have you always been like this? Were, were you sort of did, – did an advisor try to curtail your broad range or is this something that just happened over time, different stages of your career? Um, I, I would say I had a great advisor. Uh, Jane Swengler has since retired and uh, she basically always said, uh, you, you decide your own academic fate and you decide the kind of scholar you want to be and you pursue your research interests. Of course, you need to have a, an area of specialization. Um, and if there's one defining area that continues to bind all these different areas of research that you've just mentioned, it's identity. So uh, if I take the example of ethics, I'm interested in researcher identities. If I look at uh, emotions, for example, which is what we'll be talking about later, um, emotions and identity are closely related, I have to say. Um, my work on scales uh, ultimately also deal with uh, how do we uh, perform identity across different scales of time, and, and over different social scales uh, in terms of uh, hierarchy. Um, by hierarchy, I mean I talk about the identity politics that exists because some identities are valid more than others, some races are more identified than others, and, and so and so forth. So identity has been the, the one glue that joins all my research and links all my areas of research. I apologize, there's some traffic outside. No, no problem. Um, so, um, so, uh, so if you look at identity as being the core of my research agenda, it has branched out into all these other, I would say, complementary uh, research interests. And, and so in that respect, um, I've had the... Uh, the pleasure of being able to to pursue those interests um, and being a tenured professor now that 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 uh, that freedom of course has increased in that respect <laughs> why why identity um, I think who we are influences the way we learn and the way we teach. So my PhD, as I mentioned earlier, is in second language acquisition. So I'm interested in issues related to language learning and language teaching. And so we take the idea, uh, the idea of teacher identity, um, how, how you see yourself as a language teaching professional ultimately is going to determine the type of pedagogy you conduct in your classroom. All right. And the way you teach uh also needs to move in sync with the identities of your learners because each learner is different. And, and we all we know that work from individual differences, second language acquisition research, right? Uh, no, no two learners are the same. And, and so I feel that identity is important because 
At the same time, identities are not static. We are always changing. We're always evolving. Uh, no one's cast. No identity is cast in stone. So that's one one reason why I'm very much drawn to identity. And and, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm a critical educational linguist who's interested in uh, issues of power, inequality, and disparities. And um, we just have to look at the the global situation right now. Take U.S. as an example. Uh, U.S. Gov- uh, the U.S. government is is very much characterized by identity politics, you know. And so I think identity uh, bleeds into multiple areas of our lives. Uh, and the last point I want to make is that as a sociolinguist, so I look, um, I look at language learning and language teaching very much through a social lens. And and in that respect, those social relationships, in my perspective, uh, really do impact uh, language learning and language teaching outcomes. And, well, can, and so I, for, yeah, can I ask you ahead. a question about that? Yes. Um, so as far as your identity, mm-hmm. or, or really anyone that speaks more than one language fluently, mm-hmm. From a from a bilingual perspective to a right. monolingual perspective, I think you could agree that identity affects. Sorry, uh, your your language affects identity. So yes. the more languages that you speak, does that dilute a single identity, or is your view the more languages you you speak creates uh, a more rich, fulfilled identity? Do you see what I mean? Does it go from Does it go from like a mono to a so for me, like I'm, I'm mostly a monolingual. So my identity is really ingrained in my first language. Mm-hmm. Um, so like my identity was already different than yours just because of your ability to speak multiple languages. Mm-hmm. So I would say two things here. You mentioned that there, your language I, in, uh, impacts your identity. And I would say it works both ways. Your identity also in, impacts your language because who you are, Let's say if you're a monolingual, uh, you, that might, or bilingual or multilingual, right? That your identity will determine how you use language, how you learn language in that respect. So hmm. someone who is perhaps bilingual has the benefit of uh, knowing his or her first language. And that first language in many ways uh, would support his or her learning of the second language in that respect. And that could determine, for example, your identity of being a successful or less successful uh, language learner. Um, In terms of uh, dilution, um, as a post-structuralist, and I'm sure to, (laughs) I'm happy to explain that uh, a little bit more. Um, I don't believe in structures. I I think that uh, identities are multiple. I believe that identities are fluid. And if you remember, I said earlier that identities uh, are not cast in stone, right? Mm. Identities are constantly evolving over time and over space. So my identity, if I say I'm in the US, might be slightly different from my identity in in Singapore when I'm there. Mm. Um, And so I might uh, perform my public self uh, slightly differently. in correspondence with the uh, social contexts that I'm in, in that respect. So, and and also, uh, you may be familiar with the fact that uh, uh, that increasingly many uh, 
sociolinguists and second language acquisition researchers are starting to look at this idea of translanguaging. Um, earlier work looked at uh, code mixing and code switching. So when we translanguage, we move back and forth between one or more, uh, two or more languages. And, and you can do that, of course, if you are uh, proficient in, in several languages. And the very fact that you choose to translanguage or shuttle between languages, that act itself is an identity decision, right? Because you probably want to demonstrate to the person that you're talking to that you, you're, you want to demonstrate your bilingual or multilingual self in that respect. Um, people... Uh, perform identities for a number of reasons. But if I had to summarize it into two broad reasons, it would be either to build solidarity with the person they are speaking with, to show, in other words, I'm like you, I'm one of you, okay? We are similar. But at the same time, people might also perform identity uh, in order to highlight the differences between you and me. Um, so I might distinctly decide to use a different language. If I can speak two languages, and let's say you speak English, and I speak Japanese and English, but I choose to speak um, Japanese to you, then one reason could be to say that uh, I am very different from you, you know, or, or I'm a better Japanese speaker than you, you know. And so, another, and I don't speak Japanese, by the way, I'm just giving that as an example. Uh, but the, the point here is that people perform identities, as I said, for a whole range of reasons. But if you kind of uh, distill it to two main reasons, I would say to to establish solidarity or to establish difference and distinction. Well, that's that's really interesting. And that, that kind of came up on a previous episode with uh, David Matsumoto when he uh -huh. was studying display rules with Japanese and, and Americans. And right. he was talking about how some communication styles are symmetric, where like you said, you're trying to establish your, your similarities. But in Japan, a lot of, a lot of times it's asymmetric where uh -huh. you're establishing, you know, your sort of social situation class. So for example, right. a teacher would be given more respect than the student or right. your boss would be given more respect. And then the emotion display rules as far as how people perceived other people's emotions were, right. were quite different uh, throughout culture. So it's, it's a fascinating topic. And I guess that's a good jumping point into the article. Uh, sorry, the chapter. Okay. Which is um, chapter 12 of the, the book, um, The Emotional Roller Coaster of Language Teaching. And chapter 12 is the chapter that you wrote with Wendy Lee and Hima Rawal. And it's called, yeah. Should I Stay or Leave? Exploring L2 Teachers' Profession from an Emotionally Inflected Framework. So before we get into the, the chapter, can you tell me how, how this came to be? I'm assuming one of, the, one of these writers is, is one of your PhD students and possibly um, that student was doing work in Nepal. Is that, is that the correct assumption? So I would like to acknowledge my two co-authors, uh, okay. Wendy Lee, um, who is originally from China, and Hima Rawal, who is originally from Nepal. Uh, they're both my uh, PhD students, and I've collaborated very extensively with them. We've uh, co-authored a number of pieces together. Uh, the data for this chapter in particular uh, 
were collected by Hima. Uh, as I mentioned, she's originally from Nepal, and and so she had access uh, to to Nepalese uh, participants in their respect. Mm-hmm. Now, can you can you give the listeners a bit of background to this context? There were there were two um, there were two people interviewed, and yes. you they were given pseudonyms. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as far as why were these two? two teachers chosen and you know wh- why were they chosen what what particular city was there a region that was identified how how were, how were, how did the how did the research come to be um as in most research cases uh in many ways you are um, you know very much um beholden to and and very grateful to your research participants so uh, as you know, it's always a challenge to find participants. But Hima was very fortunate to have had these two participants say yes to her. And so they were selected be- simply because of their willingness to volunteer in this research project. And uh, she reached out to friends, and we, we call it the snowballing technique, where you ask friends to recommend other friends. And so that's how we, we ended up working with these two individuals uh, who we named uh, uh, with pseudonyms, uh, Chabi and uh, Sunil. And uh, I, I want to say that uh, Hima herself is a former teacher uh, in, in Nepal, and she was, uh, after starting her career as a a teacher in the public schools, uh, she took on a position as a university lecturer at her local university. And so she had, I would say, a vast uh, network of uh, professional uh, in the context that she could tap. And, and, and so we chose these two individuals, as I said, simply because uh, of their willingness to volunteer as, as our project participants. Now, one of the individual they're both male. One of the individuals was 25. The other was 30. Um, the, the, the older respondent has left the teaching industry. Um, and the thing that kind of jumped out to me was the, the class size. Uh, right. Sumil's class size, size, I think, was over 100. And That's Chabi right. was between 80 to 100. I mean, if we're talking about emotional labor... I mean, we can yeah. kind of stop right there, right? I mean, that's that's way too big. Was this a it's a high school English class? A public high school, yeah. A public school, yes. Um, I mean, I the just, the class size. That's I, I don't know if I could handle that myself. So I, I said earlier that I'm my critical education linguist, and I look at issues of power and disparity. Um, Nepal is is not as I should say uh, economically as endowed as other countries. Should we put it this way? And so not every country, not every school system, as we see in the U.S. as well, has access to resources, right? Um, And so public schools tend to be less uh, well-resourced than private schools in any country, um, if if you agree with me. Um, Our study was based on uh, work uh, involving two public school teachers, uh, where, of course, the class sizes are larger. But at the same time, these class sizes of anywhere between 80 to 100 is the norm in Nepal, not the exception. Okay, So that is the uh, material reality that teachers in Nepal have to en- encounter. 
because it's, it's a question of economic resources. Can you build enough schools? Can you build enough classrooms in the schools? And, and what level of uh, funding and support can you provide? Uh, schools and the teachers and the students who attend these schools. So I need to put that in context as well, right? Uh, uh, socioeconomically, uh, where does uh, where does this country sit? And socioeconomically, who attends these public schools? Well, let, let's let's talk about the private to the public because that was mentioned in the chapter as one of yeah. the reasons why public schools and teachers are being pressured to get their students to pass high to pass high stakes examinations which is a tough situation now I, i'm not really familiar with the 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 system there in nepal it, are private schools growing in popularity and this is is this putting pressure on the public schools what exactly is the is the the educational landscape there now as with parents in any society right all parents are aspirational for their children Parents want their kids, the next generation, to have a better life than themselves. And so Nepali parents uh, feel that private education is better than public education. Uh, it's also going to cost more than public education, right? Simply because generally private schools are better resourced. We're looking at smaller class sizes, and as part of this uh, upward aspirational trajectory, um, English is often seen or perceived to be the ticket to a better life. All right. So we, there is a, a trend towards developing and establishing EMI or English medium instruction private schools. And uh, where, of course, then uh, the, the subjects are taught in English. And then the expectation is that if you are educated in English uh, on graduation, you'll be able to get a better job or on graduation, you, you'll be accepted to university and, and so on and so forth, right? In, 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 in other words, you'll have a better life, a more uh, financially secure future. So yes, there is then pressure. If private schools are jumping on the EMI bandwagon, then public schools too feel that uh, there's compelling need to follow that trend. Uh, and, and so that's what we see happening, not just in Nepal, but in many countries around the world. Um, unlike, unlike Singapore, Nepal made this ruling in 2010, which is sort of pushing English EMI. So this right. is a fairly recent thing. That's right. um, and this, this, this kind of aligns with Simon Humphrey's chapter, where teachers were put under press, pressure because of a changing curriculum and uh, different, you know, different types of instruction, different resources, different textbooks, these sort of things. So right away, I, I, I'm empathizing with these teachers where the class sizes are big, and now all of a sudden you need to be teaching your class in English, and and that one of the themes in the chapter is that these teachers feel like they're lacking autonomy or lacking teacher teacher agency. They're not really sure. in control of what they're doing. Um, they exactly. feel like they have to do it, but they're maybe uncomfortable with doing it. And then this uh -huh. is causing emotional strain. That was, that was a big key for me reading the chapter. That's right. Um, so imagine if I were a math teacher in Nepal, right? And now I have to teach math 
in a language that's not my first language. That is clearly an added layer of stress, <laughs> you know, because I have to negotiate content, which is math, but I have to deal with that content in a language that I might not be completely proficient or comfortable in. So uh, imagine having to teach uh, your, 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 an American teacher having to teach uh, chemistry in French, <laughs> in that sense, and whilst he's still learning French, right? It, it puts a, a tremendous amount of stress on, on teachers. But at the same time, the stress is coming from the school system, from a national education system, in, in, in that sense. Um, and, and so that was the situation that uh, the teachers in, in our chapter encountered because, because they're being uh, compelled to do this, they also felt uh, that their agency had been curtailed, right? They didn't have much say because this is the curriculum and you've been instructed by the administrators in your school to deliver, to carry out the curriculum. Um, and so uh, this certainly added to their stress level because now they, they, they felt that they had to do double duty, you know, not only teaching their, within their subject area, but having to teach that subject area in a language that is not their first language. Well, can we talk about expectations? Because in the chapter, you talk about societal expectations versus reality. Sure. Um, as far as the parents and society wanting the students to be proficient in English and then the lack of resources, the large class sizes, uh, lack of training, all, all of these things. But as far as a teacher entering that system, you said that teachers are aware that the class sizes are going to be big. As, you know, and, and the, the whole issue of teaching to the test. Are right. teachers aware that they're going to enter a system where essentially their job is to prepare students to pass a test it's almost like you said, there, there's no autonomy. There's no agency. Are, right. are there, are there, is that what they're expecting when they're entering the system? Is that what they're going over in their teacher training? Um, how, because I'm not even sure what's going on in America because I feel like the teaching to the test trend wasn't really so much when I was going to school. I feel like it changed you know, once I got out. Um, so I, as far as teacher expectations – Right. What, 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 what's going on with that? Uh, I'm not sure how old you are, Jonathan, but of course, you know, during when Bush was president in the U.S., you know, he, he started this initiative called No Child Left Behind, right? And yeah, I was then, in college then. Okay. And, and so, you know, we've had this around for the greater part of, um, you know, 15, 20 years now. Um, I'm using that as an example to show um, how something like nickel be a no child left behind um, actually gave power to standardized tests because mm -hmm. the expectation or understanding was that if we can streamline exams, then we can hold students and teachers to high standards. And there's some truth in that. But at the same time, when you have standardized tests, um, I, as I mentioned earlier, not all identities, not all individuals are equal. Mm. individuals who have access to more resources are certainly going to do far better. Logic tells you that, right? Mm. If you come from a, a wealthier family and you have access to all these educational resources, no surprise, chances are you're going to do better at school than your counterpart who comes from, say, an impoverished family uh, who has uh, 
less access to, to educational resources. To answer your question, I don't think the teachers were naive. I think they went into the profession with their eyes wide open. Um, perhaps what they didn't expect was the extent of the challenges that they encountered at school. All right. And that's not to criticize the education system in Nepal or the, the professional uh, development or, uh, uh, that they receive. Right. I, as I said, I go back to the point that uh, it's a question of access. Right. Ministries of education, school administrators always have, uh, I would think, the best intentions uh, in mind. But if the resources don't match those intentions, then you're going to fall short, right? And I think this is what we encountered uh, in, in, in uh, the, the context of our study here, that uh, everyone was certainly well-intentioned. They wanted their kids to do well. They wanted their kids to improve their, not just their English proficiency, but improve their learning outcomes so they, they would have better and brighter futures. But unfortunately, the reality is the resources weren't there to match. So, for example, the, the teachers in our study, um, uh, Chabi and Sunil, said they felt they didn't have enough mentoring uh, opportunities. Well, the fact is, if their mentor teachers or senior colleagues were equally taxed in terms of having to deal with large class sizes and so forth, um, it's it, in some ways it's understandable that they didn't receive the mentoring opportunities that they wanted to have. So in in many ways it just comes back again to this idea of resources. You know how how well developed uh, the the infrastructure is uh, in in that sense. It was encouraging to to see that one of the teachers or maybe both sought out extra help by going to conferences and things, and that was that was really cool. I I, I almost in my own in my own life, I'm thinking now, if there's a conference in Nepal, I think I'll yeah. try to go because right. that was really encouraging because I'm thinking back in times where I was had emotional burnout and I yeah. wasn't getting support and I was so tired. And it's really hard to take that step on your own to think, okay, yeah. I'm going to go re I'm going to go, go to this conference and who knows how far away it was. Um, right. Maybe it's good for, Especially for me being in Japan, I never, I, I usually just do conference in Japan or Korea or maybe Singapore. Um, but I do know other people that go to conferences in Nepal or, you know, some of these destinations, like you said, that don't have as many resources. That might be good for teachers to do. Um, I would like to meet these, these teachers. I, it's kind of exciting to know that they sought out extra help and they tried okay. to, they tried to, to fix their situation themselves, which is really tough. Yeah, and I do want to say, Jonathan, you and I are fortunate in the sense that we have the option to attend conferences right. outside of the country that we reside in, right? You just yeah. mentioned you, 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 you have the option to uh, conference in Singapore because you have the economic means to get on a plane and fly to Singapore, stay in a Singapore hotel and, and you, you know, uh, and uh, take on the expenses associated with the conference. Uh, the teachers in Nepal don't have those, those options, right? Uh, in a way to conference internationally, most of them don't. Um, but they do have the option to conference locally. And in our chapter, one of the organizations that our participants mentioned is uh, NELTA, the, Nepali, uh, the Nepal English Language Teachers Association. 
So this is certainly a non-profit volunteer uh, professional association uh, that has been around a long time. Um, and uh, this is certainly a resource, a professional development resource that uh, teachers in Nepal uh, have access to. They, they, uh, and, and the teachers in our study did take advantage of that resource. But you're right, you have to be, number one, aware that such a professional association exists. And number two, have the, the desire and drive to attend a conference because uh, Nepal's a big country, but uh, infrastructure-wise, you, you know, getting from one city to the, the next can be a little bit challenging in, uh, in that respect. So you have to think about physically, how do I get from one city to the next, for example? Right. If I if I teach in an uh, in a rural region, you know, I literally have to cross mountains to get to mm. uh, an urban setting. So, so 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 we need to understand the challenges there are not entirely the same as perhaps uh, challenges in some other um, say Western countries. Uh, okay, or a highly uh, developed uh, Asian countries like Japan in in, in that sense. Uh, but I do want to emphasize the the power and the value of professional associations like NELTA, all right? Uh, uh, Pakistan has another example, uh, another a sister or sibling organization called SPELT, uh, the Society for Pakistani English Language Teachers. And, and so my, my advice to teachers who feel burnt out, mm-hmm. teaching can be a very, very isolating profession, right? Because you, the teacher working with your students. And if you don't get a chance to talk about your teaching with your teacher peers, it's very understandable that uh, burnout will set in. What you need to do is to have that opportunity to talk about your experiences, not just the bad things, right? People seem, some teachers tend to congregate and gripe about what's wrong with teaching. But I think it's also equally important for, for teachers to come together and talk about what's good and what's great about teaching and, and that's where I think you will get that kind of sustenance from your teacher peers when you you, you are in close contact with with them and you get to exchange uh, experiences and stories with with each other what what advice would you give to a teacher who feels bogged down by mm-hmm. lack of teacher agency feels they're a cog in the machine they're just there to prepare people for for the for the high stakes test Sure. What, what advice would you give a teacher in that situation? See, I wouldn't say, I, I would agree that some teachers feel less uh, agency in their, in their teaching context, but there are always very small, subtle ways that you can also insert your, <laughs> your agenda in the classroom, right? It's not as if someone's monitoring you 24-7, unless, of course, you have a camera uh, 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 you, you know, installed uh, and, and your principal is watching you all the time. Uh, yeah, yes, I understand that some teachers have to teach to the test. There is a curriculum they need to deliver. But at the same time, if, if it's a 60-minute lesson and you devote 50 minutes or 45 minutes of each lesson um, doing what is expected of you, but you spend 10 or 15 minutes each day doing what you think is liberating, and you know that can mean many things, right? Doing things that you want to do, things that you think your students will enjoy, then I think that's a good way of uh, achieving some level of equilibrium, 
you know, where you're true to your professional self, you, you're showing that you care for your students and have their interests at heart. But at the same time, you're not kind of uh, derailing from, your, from what you, you're, you've been hired to do, basically, which is, in some cases, to prepare students for high-stakes tests or exams. What advice would you give a teacher who's feeling pressure with the English-only policy? In the chapter, one of the respondents said, this was the ghost that haunts the teachers. What advice would you give um, someone who's struggling with the EMI? Yeah, and, and so what I would do is, going back to the idea earlier point, that I would say join a professional organization. Uh, you are not alone. I always feel that uh, there are others who are probably struggling with you and encountering a similar situation. Um, if anything, uh, learn about what your peers at other schools and other school districts might be doing. And if, if proficiency is an issue that you're grappling with, then, you know, uh, there's no better way to improve your, not just your English skills or any language skills, but by, by working collaboratively uh, and learning collaboratively with others. Because many teachers, um, and in an earlier study many years ago that I did with another student, uh, Lorena Balmori, uh, who's based in Italy, uh, one of the things the teachers these teachers that we worked with were in a, in vocational schools. So they were working with students who are not university bound as, as the term vocational schools uh, implies. Mm -hmm. And so they felt that they were caught in a bind, right? They were not getting the uh, intellectual stimulation that they wanted because their students had low levels of proficiency. And in some ways they felt that their own proficiency started to, encounter some level of attrition in that sense mm. well if you feel like you're stuck in a hole then you know go out you know um we live in very fortunately uh, a virtual world for better or for worse you know where if you can't physically travel to a place and uh, uh especially in this covid era you know do face-to-face -face, uh learning interactions with uh, others to improve your language, there's certainly uh, online resources to, to help you not only improve your language proficiency, but also to pick up val valuable best practices or helpful practices that you can incorporate into your curriculum design and lesson planning. All right. So the, the chapter is, should I stay or leave exploring L2 teachers profession from an emotionally inflected framework? And this is a chapter in the emotional roller coaster of language teaching. Um, I, something I really enjoyed, I guess we can finish off with this. I really enjoyed your literature review. We've already gone for uh -huh. about an hour, so I don't want to take more of your time, but I would, I would direct people to explore the literature review. There was a lot of concepts that, that were introduced to me. And I'm actually interested in going over those more. I know we talked about that before the podcast recorded, um, but I we don't really have time to get into all those now. But I do I do recommend people to to go over and look at the the Hochschild study and uh, the other author in the book, uh, Banesh. Those are very interesting concepts to me. Some things that I kind of want to think about. I thought you did a great, a great job establishing the the concept, the literature review, the background. Um, I thought it was a very, very well written. I, I like your writing style and your co-author's writing style. So well done. Thank you so much. And I hope that, that your listeners uh, do get a chance to read uh, the chapter. And and the last thing I, I would like um, um, all of you to think about is the idea of reflexivity. 
I think as teachers, we all need to think about the way we teach. And uh, that's something we we need to consider uh, and, and to kind of, in a way, un- uh, go back to your earlier question, Jonathan, what can teachers do? I think they need to reflect on their teaching. You know, what's good about their teaching and what are areas for improvement uh, in, in that sense? And, and uh, to also know uh, and to close here, one of the things we recommend is the need for teachers to take care of their emotional well-being. And that's not something that's super complex, right? I think it's the basic things that need, teachers need to remember uh, to exercise, to sleep mm-hmm. enough. You know, they need to take care of themselves before they can take care of their students. Because if you're not in a happy place uh, in your life, both personally and professionally, ultimately it's your students who who are who are going to suffer. You know, and who will be shortchanged in that sense. Well, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. And I look forward to, to reading more of your work. Again, it's uh, Dr. Peter DaCosta from Michigan State University. Thank you, Jonathan. And have a good day. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.